we're continuing where we left off. The um, It is April 12th, 2020, and we're going to continue with the thought of the week and prayer. Okay, today's thought of the week is titled Through Faith. And it's coming from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the only way sinful man can receive God's gracious offer of salvation. Obviously, faith does not violate grace at all. The very nature of faith requires that you look away from yourself. In contrast, the law is like a mirror. When you look at the law, it reflects back on you. Faith is the opposite of looking to the law and its focus is on the person of Christ. When we look away from ourselves to Christ, we see who and what he is. He is the Lord and Savior. He performed all the work necessary to save us. First, we lived, he lived a perfectly obedient life before the Father. He earned a righteousness which no one condemned in Adam ever could. Second, he was judged for the sins of the world, according to John 1.29, and I would add 1 John 2.2. 2. All your sin and all mine were imputed to Christ on the cross, and then he was punished by the Father, Isaiah 53.10. The Father is satisfied with the work of Christ on our behalf. Faith in every sense looks away from self for its function. Faith in the world trusts that we are the ones who are hopelessly and helplessly. I'm sorry, start that again. Faith in the word trusts that we are the ones who are hopelessly and helplessly lost. And Christ is the only one who is qualified to save. Now, we must know that just looking to Christ and understanding that he is the Savior is not faith. Faith not only looks away from self to Christ, it puts the matter of our soul salvation squarely on Christ's shoulder. We believe that without him, we are helpless. Faith trusts this important matter of our soul salvation to Christ. So when we trust our salvation to Christ, we stop trying to impress God or show him that we are somehow worthy in ourselves. We simply depend, trust, and rely on Christ to do what he does best, save us. And that is the thought of the week. Let me offer a brief commentary. And that is there were a couple points that were raised I'd like to emphasize. First, it is finished. It is completely finished. All of the work required by God for our salvation has been executed perfectly by Christ. His name has been raised above all names. We've all heard of him, and because of him, we know that there is no other name given among men by which we can be saved. But do we put our trust and faith in his work? Do we know that we can do nothing to save ourselves? Do we understand why faith it's the only way sinful man can receive God's gracious offer of salvation. Do we know what salvation is and is not? Today is Resurrection Sunday, more commonly known as Easter Sunday. God has gone through great length, miraculous signs and wonders to usher in the church age. What does he require of you? An audience. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Such amazing feats deserve our ear. And that is my commentary. We'll turn it over to Dave for the prayer. All right, thanks, Dwight. At this time of our service, anyone that has anyone in need of prayer? Uh, yes, Dave, remember, remember the Jones family. Uh, in prayer, they just we just heard word that they received uh, the virus, so asking for prayer for them. Okay, but 
with me and my family and all my loved ones. And at this time, we'd like to take this to the throne of grace. Heavenly Father, we ask you, Lord, to look over us as us, Father, this day, Lord. Protect those who are struggling, Father, through this world while we fear, Father. We ask you, Lord, to look over those who are also been diagnosed with this COVID-19 um, virus, Father. We ask for the Jones family. We ask you to provide also for the pastor's family and for Bill's family. Heavenly Father, we ask for you, Lord, to look over to comfort us, Father, on this day. Uh, we know that this is the resurrection, the day that Christ would judge for all of our sins with the cross, Father. Not only for the believers, but for the unjust also, Father, because he is the propitiation for all of our sins, Father, for the whole world. Father, we ask you as we continue the service that you look upon us, Father, you will convict each one of us, Father, and let the word, Father, convict our hearts so we can grow in your spirit grace, Father. We ask this, Father, that you will look over us as we continue to walk in this grace, Father, in this world, Father, that we know that it's not our own, Lord. But we ask you, Lord, to look upon each and every one of us, Father, to guide us into all truth, Father. And we ask you, Father, for those who have not come to the form of repentance yet, Father, but we ask you, Lord, to allow the Spirit to work, continue with them, Father, so they can look upon Christ, who is our strength, and who is our, and who that we look upon for Him, Father, for our soul salvation. We ask you in Christ's name, and for His name's sake, amen. Amen. So we are continuing where we left off last week on this uh, classic Easter resurrection, whatever you want to call it, day. We're here and we're going to focus our attention right where we left off on John 14 and verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's since we, we have just a few words, but we want to understand what those words mean to us. We're going to take it just by a couple phrases here. So you should have notes. And in your notes, it says, Our assurances and confidence in the Lord is based on promises. These promises allow us to have future expectations, which form biblical hope in our hearts. Remember, a promise is no stronger than the person making it. In this case, it is from our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to get right into the phrase and the promise, which is a great promise. I will not leave you as orphans. So the first thought, and if I could ask if you are not speaking, go ahead and put your phone on mute, and uh, that will help keep the integrity of the conference going. So, first thought is, <clears throat> it is a definite promise for the disciples, and to the church, for sure. So, that's the first thing we ought to note, that the context of Jesus in John 14, 18, is he's talking to, directly, the disciples, but it's also... To us, And it's a sure promise. When he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, he is, this is not just something that you say at funerals to help people feel better. I know your loved one is in heaven and he's looking down at us and he's smiling and all these things that people say to make people feel better. Jesus is telling us the truth here. He's saying, I'm leaving and I'm coming, I'm going to come and I'm going to see you. I will come to you. So you can bank on this. This is not something that he's said, something was said in the Old Testament that refers to Israel and and how you have to parse it out and understand what the what he was trying to say and represent that as I know God's faithful and all that. He's not talking to me, but I know he was faithful to Israel. This is directly to us. This is in context. Uh, to the disciples, but it has reference and meaning for all of us. We will get into that later. Point B, when, when he says, I will not leave you as orphans, 
Well, it just says he's going to leave. That's one thing, that's for sure. He is going to leave. And according to the context, Jesus will physically depart this earth. John 13, 33 is where this whole thing started, and we'll turn there. Stand by. John 13 and 33. This is where our whole context picked up from this statement that Jesus made. In verse 33, my, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. So this is what threw the disciples into confusion. Wait a minute. You're leaving? How are you... And you've been talking, in chapter 12, he was talking about with the Son of Man being lifted up and all these things. Now you're talking about, I'm not going to be here only for a little while longer? Disciples were upset. Peter questioned them and got more information. And it led to chapter 14, where Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do you believe in God, believe also in me. And we've been in chapter 14 ever since, and it's been great to understand what's the bottom line. What is Jesus actually talking about? How does he, he is consoling the disciples when he says, I will not leave you as orphans. There is definitely that aspect of his comment. And we should see that as a consolation. All of this is consolation. When he talks about my father's house has many rooms, if, if, if it were not so, would I, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? All of that is to say, don't let your heart be troubled. Listen, what he gives them to console them is the word of God. He gives them a taste of what is future for them. And this is what we also can understand when we talk about what is future I am not praying for those uh, who are here, the disciples. I am also praying for those who will believe on me through their message. And he, he deals with the church age in particular. So that's John 13, 33. Jesus is saying he's going away. And then Acts, which you already know, Acts 1. This is when he goes away. 1 and 13. Uh, is it not 13? It's 11. Let me see. Is that the verse I referenced? No, it's 9 through 11. So 9 says, After he said this, he was taken up before their eye, very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So just imagine you're standing there talking to Jesus. And we stood there on the Mount of Olives when we went to Jerusalem. And to me, it was like, of course, they said, and this is the spot that he lifted up, right? They built a church over it. But just to be there on the Mount of Olives and to look over at Jerusalem and to, you know, think about in my mind, this is where Jesus ascended. And this is where Jesus, the disciples were looking in the sky at him as a cloud. He went so high that the clouds covered him. They, could, they continued to look to see if they could still see him. And this is what it says here. After this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So when we think about this, and we're uh, in our notes here, we're looking at when did Jesus go away? He says, I will not leave you as orphans. Well, he is leaving them physically. He's leaving. He's going into heaven, no doubt. And we just read that. Uh, in Acts and, and also referenced in John. Point C, Jesus will leave 
and will not be physically back until the rapture. We just need to make sure we understand what's being said here. We're not saying when he says, I will come to you in the second half of this verse, that he's referring to the rapture. He is not, and we'll make that clear later. He won't be physically back from heaven until the rapture. Right now, if we ask, where is Jesus? He's in heaven right now. And we have some scriptures there that prove that he is in heaven. John 14, 2 through 4. Let's look at that one. And we'll go quickly through these. John 14, 2 through 4. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, what I, what I have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me uh, that you also may be where I am. So Jesus is in heaven. And where is it pretty clear right now, Jesus is not physically on the earth. Who, who is on the earth? God, the Holy Spirit. We don't often see it that way, but God, the Holy Spirit, is now on earth. And he is, it is, he has a mission. Just like Jesus had a mission, God, the Holy Spirit, has a mission to, on this earth. So, uh, and then there's uh, Romans 8, 34. I'm going to turn to all these scriptures. Romans 8, you probably have them before, but this is just to say, where's Jesus? He, 34 says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who is raised to life. This is after he was resurrected. And where is he at now? Is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Christ is in heaven right now, interceding for us. And then there's 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, which you guys know probably can by heart. And uh, 4, 16 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. This is when he does come at the rapture. He will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So we know Christ is in heaven no matter what. When we talk about physically speaking, that's where he is. It's in heaven. Confirmed, hopefully, with the scriptures. So, and then, moving forward to point D, orphans. And the Greek word for that is where I will not leave you as orphans is orphanos, and I thought, you know, I, I never really looked at that word or looked up that word to see if what that word meant. And it is actually the word that we get for orphans. It is a transliteration. So I think the King James says something like comfortless or something. But the word is actually derived from the Greek word that we, uh, orphanos, which is the word transliterated to orphans. What does it mean? It means bereft or uh, of a father or parents or those bereft of a teacher, a guide, or a guardian. Orphaned. Right? And this is from Thayer. And I like that 1A uh, definition, which really speaks of it. Uh, those Of those bereft of a teacher a guide or a guardian. And that's what Jesus, all three of those things, Jesus was, and more to the disciples. But I like the, the thought there of orphaned. An orphan is someone who doesn't, we, we think about an orphan as just somebody who doesn't have a, a, a father or a mother. And they're in an, a home where other children don't have fathers and mothers. But this is also it helps us understand that Jesus was a teacher to them. He was a guide. He was a guardian. It wasn't just somebody who was watching over the person, but it's somebody to help that person grow up. That's the the defin that was actual definition from there in the Greek. Point E. So when it says this, but we have the mind of Christ. And that's 1 Corinthians 2, 16b. That's the last verse in 1 Corinthians 2. It says, who, well, the, the verse, I'll quote, says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? 
that he may instruct him. And it says, but we have the mind of Christ. So I say, how so? And how do we have the mind of Christ? It's John 16. So I'm going to turn to John 16. And we're looking at 14 and 15. It's talking about when he, the spirit of truth, comes. We already know that part. And it says, he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what I will make known to you. So this, what does Christ have? Information, right? This is his mind. So it's even though when we think about the Spirit's coming, the Spirit of truth, it's not his information that he is making real to us, that he is illuminating to us. It is the mind of Christ. And Christ is saying it right here, literally. He says, this is from me uh, that he will receive, the Holy Spirit will, re will, will receive the information from Christ, what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me and will make it known to you. When he says all that belongs to the Father is mine, he's getting the information from somewhere. And that is the Father. So Christ is getting information from the Father. What is he getting? The Father's plan. The Father's uh, will. right? The Father's eternal purpose. Christ now has that. Christ is now the author, the, the one who, who is uh, the Lord, uh, who is the Son, who is the eternal Son, who has this information now. And it is his objective to teach us. But how does it, how does it happen? It is through the means of the Spirit. So I hope you see how it, information is cascaded from the Father to Christ to the Holy Spirit to us through pastor teachers and teachers, apostles and prophets and so forth. So we have this information. So we have the mind of Christ. That's, we are not left without, even though Christ physically left the earth, he says, don't worry, I'm going to send someone to you. He's called the spirit of truth. He's called the comforter, the counselor, all of those terms or titles fit him i love the one i told you before i love the best is the spirit of truth point f in our outline jesus leaving must have been hard for the disciples it must have been i, I can imagine we already know the scriptures where they hit the panic button and jesus told them don't let your hearts be troubled he's basically saying why are you upset and uh I can understand that. that he had been with them for three years. And not only that, they had expectations that he was the Messiah, which is correct. But they just didn't know what the Messiah would do or how the Messiah, uh, you know, what the time and the seasons were, uh, how things would be worked out. So they were not understanding of how this would go. But Jesus certainly uh, did. He understood. So there's a couple, uh, when I say it was hard for the disciples, there's a lot of scripture that deals with that. But it must have been hard for Jesus too. So there's John 12, 20 through 35. And this is a classic scripture. Uh, we've talked about it before, but I'm just covering it because Jesus is leaving and he's telling, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. But what, how, what's the impact of that on the person of Jesus Christ. And here it is in 20. So it says, this is John 12, 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. So this is, um, it's an interesting because Jesus really didn't have much to do with Gentiles at all. And he came to the lost sheep of Israel. He came as their Messiah. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. So it wasn't his job to go to the lost sheep, or I'm sorry, to the uh, Gentiles or the Samaritans. But he did. He was available to them, but it, he was first to go to Israel. He was their Messiah. So when Greeks are asking for an audience with Christ, it's confusing. 
So this is what happens. Now some Greeks among who went also to the festival and they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. When they say we'd like to see Jesus, what they're saying is we'd like an audience with Jesus. Can we talk to him? Can you get us close to him so we can talk to him? These are some Greeks which are Gentiles. And this is confusing to the disciples because as far as they know, it should be only Jews. Uh, so verse 22, Philip went to tell Andrew. Now, Philip didn't just go directly to Christ and say, hey, somebody wants to talk to you. There was confusion. Here was the confusion. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. So they finally got it to Jesus. I'm sure there was some discussion about some Gentiles wanting to see or have an audience with Christ. So it doesn't say, and so Christ met with them and they talked and they had, you know. No, this is what it says. Imagine when they came to Christ with this request, Jesus replied. This is what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Imagine he just, I can imagine he looks up into the sky and he just starts thinking to himself. And then he just says this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. All of this, remember, is coming from him getting this request for a Gentile audience. Now my soul is troubled. So this is hard for Jesus to think about. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That's what he's troubled about. He, he, he's at a point in, in his ministry where he knows this time is coming. He's been thinking about it his whole life. He understood that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now the hour has come. The time has come for him to begin to, to get focused on this point. He says, save me from this hour? Deliver me? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. This is, I'm here to die. So then he says, Father... Glorify your name. Then a voice from, came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd there uh, that heard and the, the crowd that was there and heard it said it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. Jesus said, The voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is for the time of judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up. Now this term, lifted up, means crucified. It was understood that that meant that he was going to be crucified. And on, not just crucified, this is a horrible death to be crucified, to be nailed to a cross, to be stripped naked and hung out for everybody to see shamefully on a cross. And he says, uh, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now, when he says this, to me, it goes all the way back to the conversation that Philip and Andrew and then Andrew and, and Philip in turn came to Jesus in turn came to Jesus and told them that there's a Gentile and Jesus now reflects on what's got to happen in the future for him and what sparked this thought it was the thought that he's going to die not only for the Jews but for the sins of the whole world for those Gentiles who will come. So 
and there's more you can read here. But, and I would just say, when you think about Jesus' mission, it is not just to say, oh, I'm coming to die for the sins of the world. Jesus understood that his mission was to fulfill the eternal purpose of the Father. How do I know? Because we just read it in John 16, where he talks about that everything that uh, the Holy Spirit comes, he's bringing, and that's the inauguration of the church age. And then he, he's announcing the Spirit of truth coming, and he says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. It belongs to me. And that's what the Holy Spirit is now going to make known to you. And what's happening now in the church age is literally the mission of Jesus Christ that was able that he was able to accomplish this. If Christ hadn't performed what he had to perform in terms of dying for all the sins of all people, and he like it says in First John two two, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Christ died, and this is what made him think about it, and it made him reflect on how difficult his mission was. And it was, was it hard for him? Absolutely, it was very hard for Christ. There's another passage in Matthew 26. I want to just read it, and I, since we're already, you probably know what this one is. So Matthew 26, 36. It reads, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping? And resting, look, the hour has come. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So at a time when Christ needed them the most, when he asked for prayer from them and to watch and pray, he was entering into this tough time. He had to go it alone. There was no one who, who could even watch with him. Even an hour, he said. So this was... I would imagine if the disciples had this time, this hour back, I'm sure they would have been awake if they, they know the the brevity of it all, how important it was. For Even though it was just an hour, it was such an important hour. So, in any case, what we have is, yeah, it was tough. Jesus didn't, he wasn't happy to go away. It was tough. For him, uh, we we're seeing some of the humanity of Jesus coming through. He knows that this is difficult, and when I think about how he struggled with this, I think about our lives in this world. How Jesus said, "In this world, you will have trouble, and it won't be easy for us. There will be struggles. There will be difficulties, rock in a hard place situations that we're going to fall into in this world. We should." He's warning us of that. So just know that for us to walk in the in the the calling that we have received, it's not going to be just a cake walk. Let's move on. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Is the next phrase, and this is uh, a promise. As I was saying, a promise is 
as strong as the person making it. If Jesus is making this promise to us, we can bank on it. I mean, it's even more so than your stimulus check you might get. You might get. This is for sure. I will come to you. Let's look at some points on that. Believe Jesus. This is what I'm saying. Really put your trust in him. Earlier in the chapter, he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. When I'm telling you, even though you haven't heard, even though it's foreign to your ears, trust me. I'm telling you information that you can't research in the Old Testament. You can't go to Leviticus or Exodus or Isaiah or Ezekiel to find this information. What I'm telling you is going to be information that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man. So this is a cornerstone of church-age doctrine. I'm going to turn to Colossians when he says, I will come to you. This is Colossians 1, and uh, I got 27 here, but I'm going to read a couple verses prior to that. Verse 24, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So it goes on, but that phrase, Christ in you, when Christ says, I will come to you, he's sure of it. And he's really not just talking about him coming like at the rapture. That's not it. Because when he promised he would come, he says he would receive them unto himself. That where he is in heaven, they will be there also. He's going to take them to be with him in heaven. That's the rapture. This, when he says, I will come to you, is about the church age. It's a, this is what happens at Pentecost. So we, we should understand that this coming, we don't want to confuse it with the rapture. We don't want to confuse it with the second coming of Christ. Uh, you know, we just want to make sure we understand that this is a part of the church age. I will come to you. So the dynamics of it, how it works, all that will will also be a part of what Pentecost brings to the church or um, as the church church comes alive at Pentecost. We'll talk about it more as we go. But to note, this is the cornerstone. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He literally, Christ in lives in every one of us. Now, I know we said physically Christ is in heaven right now. We said physically. But we're going to understand that there's a couple ways to look at this. So this is a spiritual coming, right? And we will talk about how that works as we go forward. Point B, he will leave them, we already said, temporarily. But will personally come back through Pentecost. So how do we see that it's tied to Pentecost? That's what we need to understand, that this coming is not tied to the rapture or second coming. It's tied right here in the context to Pentecost. If I look at verses 19 through 20, so which is the very next verse, I want to, let me get to John 14. And if I look at 19 and 20, even before that, where he says, "I will," at verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help uh, and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. And he lives with you and he will be in you. And he says in verse 18, which is, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live you also will live on that day. What day is that? 
He's talking about Pentecost, right? This is the day the Spirit of Truth comes. This is what he's been leading up to. This is what we've been dealing with in the last few Bible studies on that day, right? You will realize that I'm in the Father. You are in me. And here it is. And I am in you. On that day. That's future. What what day future is that? Pentecost, right? Like After a while, you're saying that in your mind, Pentecost, and you're shaking your head forward. Yep, Pentecost. You got it, right? So also, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, All this I have spoken while still with you, right? He's he, Physically, he's still there. He's not, he's not gone into heaven. He's not in heaven right now. But he is telling them, I'm leaving. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Because remember, he will take from what is mine and he will make it known to you. So this is the whole, So Christ is in you and the Holy Spirit is also in you, taking from the mind of Christ and illuminating it to your mind so that you can understand and get the, the thought of who Christ is in you. I will come to you, Jesus is saying. So just to note, he will leave them, but it's just going to be temporary, as we saw in 19 and 20. But then he will personally come back through Pentecost, through the information and dynamics of what will happen at Pentecost. Christ will literally come back to us. And we're going to figure out how that works. Uh, and point C, the promise, quote, I will come to you, is not fulfilled in verse 3, which is the rapture, which we already discussed. I'm just reiterating it. It will. It's not fulfilled in the rapture, but it's fulfilled in verse 20, which we just quoted, verse 20. On that day, you will realize I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. That's, that's what the fulfillment of I will come to you. Point D, I will come to you, right? Uh, on that day, what day is that? Pentecost, you will realize who's you in context, you disciples, that is, that I am in my Father and that you are in me. And notice, I am in you. Just to illustrate exactly what Jesus is referring to when he says, I will come to you. So, um, point E is, how will Jesus come to us? So that's interesting that that I, when I saw this, uh, I really this is real the real answer to this question, not physically. This is a personal, spiritual coming of Christ as a result of the baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost, the promise of the Comforter, Advocate, Counselor. If I look at John 14 and 22, now we're not at these verses yet, but these verses do go far to explain what Jesus is talking about in the context. So, so after he says this on that day, that's verse 20, 21 says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Verse 22, then Judas, not Iscariot, why, why, it's not, why, why are we making the point that that's not Judas Iscariot? Because in the previous chapter, chapter 13, Judas betrayed Christ and he left. Remember, they were at the, uh, the Last Supper. And he says, this, the one who I give this, this sop to is the one who will betray me. And, and then Judas gets up and he leaves. So we're, so Judas is not magically back. He's, is, we're not talking about Judas Iscariot. This is for clarity. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? So this is to say, this is not the second coming. This is not the rapture. Right? This is literally what happens at Pentecost. Jesus is seeing this as him saying, I will come to you. Now, we, we need to see the, 
the fullness of this as we go forward. But I just want to make sure we understood what's happening in the context. As we get to the further, the verses down a little bit, they're going to talk about the dynamics of the church age. And we're going to have plenty of time to talk about what it means. How is Christ not physically here, but he is in, in, in presence in us. He's in us. We're going to talk about the dynamics of how uh, the Holy Spirit causes Christ to come alive in our hearts. He is there and how he has to be formed. And there's a lot of thoughts that we have to cover. But in the coming weeks, we will discuss that. So, but he's not, he's not physically in us. He's through the means of the Holy Spirit, making our bodies temples. He is in us and he will live in us. We'll talk about that next week and following. So he's not showing himself to the world this coming, but he's showing this is a personal, uh, it's spiritual, meaning the world won't see it, but believers will see it. Here he's talking about the disciples, but the disciples are, um, they're, they're not the only ones he's talking about. Point G my prayer is not for them alone. That's the disciples. This is, uh, this is found in John 17, 20, and 21. And I have it quoted for you here. My prayer is not for them, that is the disciples, alone. I pray also for those, that's us, who will believe in me through their message. And that is in this age. He's not talking about the tribulation. He's talking about this, the church age. That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Same language that we just read in John 14, 20. Same thing that the disciples were, he, he promised that they would have. Now this promise is extended to us who believe in me through their message in this age that all of them may be one Father, just as, in the same way, as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's John 17, 20 and 21. So Pentecost is not just for the disciples. The spiritual dynamics of Pentecost will be extended to those in the church age as well. So that's, a wonderful promise that we participate in not just, oh, that Christ died for our sins and he rose again, but no, we were talking about the Father's eternal purpose. It's, it's We are those many sons that are being called into glory. So this is certainly uh, for us. And this is where we should sit up and pay close attention. So, We'll continue more next week, but as we think about that notable first day, I just wrote these things and I just kept writing, so I'm just going to read it straight out. This is pretty much regarding my thoughts as well on Easter or the Resurrection Day. and So as we think about the notable first day of the week, this is today, when Jesus rose from the dead, it is a guarantee to us that, quote, we too may live a new life. And this is Romans 6, 4. Having believed the message, quote, for, we, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. We are looking forward to that time when he, quote, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's in Philippians 3.20. And, quote, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That's Romans 8.23. When, 
quote, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. And during these troubled times, quote, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's in Titus 2.13. And as Peter says, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to, be, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That's 2 Peter 3.12 and 13. So, quote, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That's Acts 1.11. According to the Lord's own word, if it were not so, would I have told you I am going to there to prepare a place for you? That's in John 14, 2. So it is a special day. A day to commemorate the fact that Christ rose from the dead. He got up from the grave. The Father approved the life of Christ on this earth. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. And it helps us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by seeing that, we can believe in him and we can have eternal life. Let's bow our heads. We will continue with this context next week. Father, thank you so much for the time we had this afternoon, for the hour that we spent together in your word. You said sanctify them by your word, and your word is truth. And we thank you for giving us uh, and preserving for us the scriptures that we have in front of us. They are our life. They testify to what we are seeing and hearing. We thank you for the, the privilege of being called in this age to be selected from eternity past before time began, to be chosen in Christ. We thank you for the privilege of this group, this body, the Word is Truth Christian Church, we pray for them, everyone who is associated with, with the Word is Truth. We pray for their families and their children. And Father, as we are in this period, this pandemic, we pray for the whole world, uh, those suffering who are infected by the virus, also those who have lost loved ones. We pray that you would comfort their hearts as well. All of this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ who died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.